So we've been in a series, uh, Whole Life Discipleship. This is the third year where we've done this series. And um, what we're talking about is how to bring our whole life, our entire life to God, um, not just parts of it. And we have a tendency, right, to just bring certain parts to God, parts that we're comfortable with, uh, parts that we understand. But when it gets complex or when it gets into something we don't know much about or our culture just speaks louder, maybe, um, we tend to hold some things back. So the last two weeks, uh, there's two specific things that we're looking at, to, or that we've looked at in the last two weeks, and there's two specific things that we typically hold back from the Lordship of Jesus, and that is money, which we talked about last week, money, mammon, wealth, stuff, and then this week, our bodies, human sexuality. These are the two troubled outliers that we tend to hold on to as ours, our own. Um, these two things kind of stand as in, uh, indisputable images of autonomy, self-reliance, right? And ultimately pride. And these are our fundamental struggles. This is why we're taking some time to look at both of them because we believe this is where pride manifests um, most subversively in us and in our culture. So would you stand with me for the reading of the word? Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm going to read a couple of scriptures here and, uh, and then we'll get into to everything. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. If you don't have your Bible, it will be on the screen behind me. 16 through 18. 16 through... I'm sorry, 16 through 19. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of the world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. Just flip one page over, most likely, in your Bible to chapter 6. And we're just going to read um, chapter 6, 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. So today we're talking about the body. Not the, the, uh, there's a biblical metaphor uh, about the church in, in, in the Bible. We're actually talking about the actual human body. What is it for? What do we, why do we have one? What do we do with it? Um, so today... Uh, if you're in the room, I'll be mainly addressing Christians. Uh, obviously, we're in a church, so that may seem a strange thing to say. Um, but we are, what we are asking is people who claim to follow Jesus, followers of Jesus, what do we do with our bodies in light of that? In light of you reign above it all, you're king, what do we do with our bodies? How do we better understand and live out a healthy sexuality? How do we think about these things? The point of this talk is not to go to war 
with the culture, nor is it to trivialize in any way the deep identity struggles of many when it comes to bodies, and especially the struggles of those who don't profess to follow Jesus. I'm not trying to correct that right now. So this is more of an internal conversation. If you're not a follower of Jesus, if you're skeptical of this Jesus thing or church, you are so welcome here. Uh, I just would ask that you could just sit back, kind of a fly on the wall. <laughs> you can peer in to how Christians are trying to wrestle with these things. How we're trying to sort out our bodies, human sexuality, in light of the scripture, in light of the truth of God. And if you've been here at the Parks Church, you know that the Parks Church loves the Bible, right? We love the truth of God. We think it's everything, in fact. However, the truth is, Romans 3.23 says, all of us have fallen short of that truth. So that kind of just levels the playing field, right? All of us have fallen short of this truth. We all have broken relationships with our own bodies. All of us in this room. Trying to figure it out. No one in this room is exempt from sexual brokenness. Confusion on this issue. None of us are. Each one of us. Whether single, married, student, a senior, you, we're all wrestling with this. This is a dominant conversation for humans. And we're trying to figure it out. Thankful that Jesus said, I came for the sick and not the well. And church, um, it should be a hospital. And that's what this is. Church is a hospital for all the broken people. And we're all broken <laughs> Right? Counseling is for crazy people, and we're all crazy. So, go to counseling. (laughs) So, my emphasis this morning is an invitation. It's an invitation to bring your whole self to God. Not, Not just the thoughts of your mind or your philosophies, ideologies, but your whole self, your whole body, your sexuality. Bring your past, everything... Bring your questions, bring your confusion, bring your doubts. He can handle it. He's not put off by this topic. Did you know that? God is not put off by this topic. He's not like, gross. He's he's not thinking that. He made you. He knows you. He has a plan for you. So Jesus is not afraid of your questions. He sees you. And I want you to hear this, that Jesus knows what he's getting into with loving you. And he runs towards you. I think the reason you're in this room right now, each one of you, is because Jesus is chasing you. God is pursuing you. There's no chance in the kingdom of God. There's no coincidence. God is pursuing you. And I believe that's why you're here. He loves you. His love for you, though, is a real love. Okay? It's the realest love. And real love has vision for you. Vision for your life that will lead you to the best kind of living. 
Real love is love with intentionality. Real love is love with a plan, with a purpose. So more than anything this morning, I, um, I pray that we all can discover that we can trust Jesus with all of us, all of our self. There are no compartments that you need to keep away from him. Okay? So first, I want to talk about the cultural waters that we swim in. All right? 2022, the last several decades. How does our culture talk about bodies? How does our culture think about the body? What does our culture do with the body? Some of you already are thinking about things. Our culture has very strong convictions about the body, very strong doctrines, if you will, about the body. And I believe it can be summed up like this. You are your own and you belong to yourself. I think that's one of the most dominant cultural doctrines about this topic and about everything, but specifically about this topic, that you are your own. And you belong to yourself. When you are your own, you place yourself as the ultimate authority, right? When you own you, you define you. This philosophy has massive implications on just about everything that we do. It's also one of the most disorienting and confusing philosophies because it sounds right, right? You listen to that and you're like, who else should be in control? Who else should own me? Another person? Should the government own you? Probably not. (laughs) That probably is not a good thing. So we wrestle. But in reality, it's fragmented. It's a schizophrenic even philosophy. It's this idea that each individual defines their own reality with their own facts or their own value systems. You're in charge. You're autonomous and independent. And what could go wrong? What could go wrong? And it's not new. So let's go to the beginning. Grab your, your word and let's flip to Genesis um, chapter 3, 6 through 11. Genesis chapter 3, 6 through 11. And it'll be on the screen behind me if you don't have one. Have a Bible with you. This is an easy book of the Bible to find. <clears throat> so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, so the serpent, the, the, the devil came to her, convinces her that God's probably not that trustworthy and you don't have to do what he's talking about. Uh, You can eat from this tree that he said not to. And so this is what happens. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, this is the man, I, I, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. And I hid myself. And then God says, who told you that you were naked? 
Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? I think it's really cool. God knows the answers to all those questions. But what God wants with you and with me is a relationship. He wants communion with you and me. He wants intimacy, friendship. That's really significant. So what I want to point out in this story is that this is the fall, right? This is Genesis chapter 3. This is when sin enters the world. And the manifestation of this fracture, the first manifestation of the fracture of sin has to do with what? The body. They realized they were naked. They were ashamed. There was shame, embarrassment. And their solution to that shame was what? Sew fig leaves and cover themselves. Friends, we've been sewing fig leaves for thousands of years. We're in the fig leaf business. The humans are in the fig leaf business. (laughs) The human solution is to cover ourselves, to hide ourselves, to protect our own selves, to provide for ourselves. The human solution to sin and shame has always been and will always be autonomy. I'm just going to do it on my own then. Self-reliance. Kyle did an awesome job last week talking about money, right? And at the root of money, what was there? It was this principle that money gives us a sense of an independent power. A non-dependent power. Money gives us a sense of autonomy. So we're talking about Adam and Eve here. But if you just go one more generation, their sons, Cain and Abel, you see the same thing manifest in a different way. Cain ends up killing his brother Abel. And God meets him, deals with him, but, but says, I'll still protect you. I'll keep you. In light of what you've done, I'm a merciful God and I'll keep you. I'll protect you from harm. And the Bible says that Cain departs from the presence of the Lord. And what does Cain do? Cain goes and builds a city. He goes to the land of Nod and he, and he builds a city. He builds walls. He begins to sow fig leaves. Jacques Ellul points out that the building of a city at its core is the human impulse to protect ourselves, to be sufficient, to provide for all we need to flourish as humans. And he says this, Cain's city is a claim that he is his own and he belongs to himself. Cities are not inherently bad, but you get the point. So these are our origin stories. Creation begins with a fall and confusion and shame regarding the body and relationship, right? That first moment, Adam and Eve are together. And what do they realize? They realize we're naked. Just eight verses prior to that, what does it say? Man and wife were joined together and they were naked and they were unashamed. And in eight verses, they realize they're naked. 
And I think one of those principles is because it was the introduction of selfishness. Eve put herself first. Adam put himself first. And that broke something. And if you've ever been in a relationship where someone, one of those partners, is putting themselves first, it kills vulnerability. It kills trust and it kills love. And they felt that. And shame entered the picture. Sin entered the picture. So that origin story kind of sent humans on this trajectory to try to control the situation, manipulate our state so that we aren't ashamed of who we are. And this struggle with our body continues on. Greek philosopher Plato, if you've heard of him, he believed that the soul was held prisoner by the body. This is his, this is his interpretation. The soul was held prisoner by the body and that the soul of a person was simply captive by the body. The body was, in essence, at war against the soul. Following that same logic, several hundred years later, the Gnostics taught the, the heresy, the Christian heresy, that Christian redemption comes through the nurturing of the intellect and condemning of our bodily existence. To them, the mind, the soul, was superior to the body and was really the only thing that mattered to God. And that was a heresy because... The scriptures and Christ himself taught the doctrine of bodily resurrection, not just spirit, right? And Jesus, when he was resurrected, uh, had a body, right? Do you remember Thomas, doubting Thomas? Jesus wasn't just a spirit. Thomas said, show me your scars. And Thomas put his finger in the scar of Jesus. He felt his body. And then from our text today... We see that the Corinthian understanding, this is in chapter 6, um, was something similar to that. This would be AD 54-ish, and they had a similar understanding. Um, they were believing that the spirit belonged and was submitted to God, but the body was fleshly and temporal. And uh, Paul was trying to correct that belief, right? Uh, that you could claim Christianity and continue to practice sexual morality using your body as you pleased. In the 17th century, Descartes says, what? You know it? I think, therefore I am. Where did the body even go? The separation of body and soul, or body and mind, body and person, right? Is what I want us to see. I think it's exactly where we are today. Our culture separates the body from the person. It creates two categories. The person is often defined as consciousness, right? Or the mind, or uh, an internal, an inner feeling. That's who you really are. That's what our culture thinks. And then the body falls to a second tier of importance in nature, right? Mechanics, machinery, an object to be used or manipulated. And what does our culture think about Nature? Richard Dawkins says this. He says, Natural selection, the blind, unconscious, automatic process which Darwin discovered had no purpose in mind. So the body falls into that nature category. Blind, no real purpose. But the person is in another, another category, a higher category. 
So the body should be regarded as unintelligible, really, random, part of an evolutionary process that is really to be um, disregarded to some degree. So for the most part, I believe that our culture has fully received this definition and explanation for our bodies. This dualism, this dichotomy, this separation of person and body manifests everywhere if you start looking. And I believe it's devastating to the human race. So what I want to do is I want to attempt to show you every serious places where it's manifesting, this separation. Um, In no way did we plan this Sunday to fall, this body talk to fall on this Sunday, but this weekend is the anniversary of the Roe v. Wade decision. And uh, in churches, we consider it the Sanctity of Life Sunday. Um, this is where we uh, remember that all life uh, is, all human life is made in the image of God, inside the womb and out. In Nancy Piercy's book, Love Thy Body, which is fantastic, and I'd recommend it to everyone, um, she points out that this dualism, this dichotomy, is the argument that even abortion rests on. Um, I want to show you this. This is a little graph. has to do with personhood theory, but it's this idea that the person, the higher level, the higher story, has moral, legal standing, but the body is very secondary, right? It's expendable. It's biological organism. It's nature. So if a fetus is not a person because it's not fully conscious, then it it is simply a body that can be disregarded. So this anniversary of Roe v. Wade is a reminder that the highest court in our land decided that even though a baby in the womb is human, it is not a person under the 14th Amendment. It doesn't have the arbitrary level of cognitive function and brain development necessary to be deemed a person because it is not a person. The baby has no moral or legal standing. And this philosophy is informing our Supreme Court. If only the mind and consciousness or cognitive development is the person, do you see how quickly this will unravel in many areas? Even more of a sobering example, in Iceland and Denmark, Sweden, there's places that have claimed to eradicate Down syndrome. This is where women, when pregnant, will take a prenatal screening, a genetic prenatal screening, and um, which is a, a provably flawed test. And if there's a possibility for a genetic question mark, the woman is highly encouraged to terminate the pregnancy. Not, in, not eliminating Down syndrome. Killing every person that has it. That's two different things. A December 2020 article in The Atlantic said this, In 1980s, as prenatal screening for Down syndrome became common, anthropologist Rihanna Rapp described the parents of the frontier of reproductive technology as moral pioneers. Suddenly, a new power was thrust in the hands, into the hands of ordinary people, the power to decide what kind of life is worth bringing into the world. The body-person dichotomy is devastating. 
It has us playing God and trying to remove fellow image bearers that are part of our collective humanity. Pornography is another obvious dehumanizing example of this. It is literally the objectification of bodies. It's exploitative. It sets violence against women at its core. And it radically forms the sexual expectations, behavior, and relationships of those who consume it. And it's everywhere. But the wisdom of the world, the folly that we read about, says it's just bodies. And there are bodies. I own it. So we should be able to do with them what we want. Even though we know medically, scientifically, across the board, harmful. It's harmful for everyone involved. People that participate in it and then people that consume it. So we come up with terms like this, ethically sourced pornography. In certain high schools, juniors and seniors can take a porn literacy class. It helps them navigate the inevitable viewing and consuming of porn. How to view porn well. Carl Truman, in his book, The Rise and Fall of the Modern Self, um, he points out how confused we are with this. He says, Pornography epitomizes the sexual revolution because it presents sex as merely a physical, pleasurable act that is divorced from any greater relational significance. Just bodies. Another example is our obsession with Youthfulness. Obsession with youth as a means of power. We objectify our own body to grab or maintain power or influence. In our culture, rather than receiving aging as a gateway to a lived wisdom, age tends to quickly push one to obsolescence. Look at the numbers in our country spent on beauty, fitness, cosmetic industry. We see both men and women spending billions of dollars a year on body or skin modifications, on surgeries, extreme diet culture, obsession with exercise and hours in the gym and a frantic, futile effort to modify or force the body into an unnatural cultural ideal of everlasting youth and beauty that has no perceivable end goal other than to avoid aging at all costs. Smoothing and contouring filters on social media change our face in real time and have become the norm for online interactions. Because Gen Z and, 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 and many spend most of their hours online, our young girls and boys will grow up being more accustomed to seeing filtered faces and bodies, including their own, the natural ones. So we objectify our own bodies to make ourselves feel powerful and in control. We're still sowing fig leaves. We're not against a healthy lifestyle, though. You really should eat good food. <laughs> you should live a healthy life. You should exercise. That's a great thing. 
But I think we know that we're blowing past that. We've gone to obsession, and that speaks of suppressing something. Insecurity, maybe shame. So we're going to look at sexuality and how this might play out. We're hitting it all today, folks. (laughs) We're hitting it all. And this idea of casual sex, this pervasive, uh, where multiple partners is commonplace, right? It's normalized all around us. We act as if it's nothing, really. Our culture is like, it's really nothing. Hookup culture says it's just physical, right? Not personal, not emotional. This understanding is everywhere we look, but we're so desensitized to it. The church is so desensitized to it, we don't, we don't really even notice it anymore. It's just normal. Paul, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, calls it sexual immorality. But our culture goes a little bit more like this. Sex exists mainly for our pleasure and only involves the interaction of body parts as a means to achieve that. Sex has little or no bearing on the person or the soul. <laughs> you feel desensitized? Let me try an example. Anyone in this room ever seen or heard of the show Friends? Everyone got real nervous, right? We've been talking about some crazy stuff, but you're like, surely we don't have to talk about Friends, right? Okay. The numbers are, there's a little bit of a debate. But the cast of Friends, over the course of their seasons, racked up about 130-plus sexual partners. Whoa. Totally normal, though, right? I think it clocked Joey in at about 51 sexual partners. Totally normal. You know. If, that, if the setting of that show was in any other time period, it would be at a brothel. For real. <laughs> but it's normal. Trust me, this talk is less fun to say than it is to hear. Just, <laughs> just so you know. <laughs> this divide has implications in so many places of our society. Um, and we see it play out in all... Um, heterosexual relationships, but it also plays out in multiple sexual ideologies in our culture. In, in homosexuality, we see the division look something like this. Sexual preference and orientation win out over biological sex and genetic makeup. It wins out. Person, body, orientation, The manifestation of it in transgender ideology seems to be most obvious to me. Namely, the argument that the mind is at war with the body. The mind or the self believes something contrary to what is reflected in biology or the body. And so the mind or the person should always win out. This is how our culture processes our bodies. Thinks about our bodies. We can talk a lot about that. But to be honest, the church doesn't have a great record or reputation 
caring for, serving, loving sexual minorities in our culture. These are not issues. These are people. We could do a whole sermon. These are not issues. These are people. There's concept involved. But they're people. So I believe Christians need to have an equal balance of compassion and critical thinking. We need to have compassion. We need to be full of Jesus' compassion. And we need to really work hard to think well about our bodies, to think well about human sexuality. It's so important. So there is a lot to be said about sexuality. This is one talk. We could do a lot of talks. Um, But I think each one of these topics needs to be handled um, thoughtfully, lovingly. And I think that communication is often best done through relationships, not posts or sound bites or gotcha moments. The church also needs to spend a lot more time listening than talking. Listening to the stories of the people in these groups. If Jesus was here today, in 2022, where do you think he'd be hanging out? I, I'm, I genuinely want to know that question. Where would Jesus be hanging out in 2022? I have a hunch that he wouldn't be doing an evangelical church tour. I just have a hunch. So we won't shy away from the truth here, but the truth is it's Christ's kindness that leads us to repentance. Please, please remember that. It's his gentleness with our brokenness. It's his patience. It's his joy in forgiving us. Our claim here, if you're just peering in and skeptical of this, our claim as Christians is that we're just trying to follow Jesus. We do not claim to be the answer people, that we have the answers to everything other than we think Jesus is probably who you're looking for. We think Jesus is what you're looking for. He's, he's, he's what you'll always be looking for. So when we repent, when we receive that kindness and mercy of Christ, we are set free from the crushing weight of sowing fig leaves. The crushing weight of self-reliance. We're brought into the family of God. So my second point, and a counterpoint to the first, is you are not your own, but you belong to Christ. You're not your own, but you belong to Christ. I believe Jesus offers a better way. He comes in as a holy disruption. We've been talking about that this series, that Jesus comes in as a disruption. He doesn't let us persist in our brokenness but he enters in with love. His holy disruption breaks us out of bondage. And so what I've attempted to do today is to show you how inhumane and broken our cultural anthropology is. How inhumane our humanness is. Autonomy looks like freedom. But it only delivers alienation and a disordered view of our body. 
a disordered view of sexuality. That's what autonomy will deliver to you. So as Christians, we believe in the teleological view of nature. Teleological is just a word for meaning with design, with purpose. We reject cultural narratives that claim things in this world, our bodies, are simply here by chance and random. We believe everything is here because God's design and purpose. When a Christian looks at nature, a Christian sees beautiful, intricate design everywhere. Therefore, we believe that the body falls under that same teleological view. It was designed. It was made with a purpose. Not just to house a person, but to be an inseparable part of that person. We are embodied souls. We are embodied souls. When God created, created us, He said, let's make man in our image. The image of God. And he didn't just create a floating consciousness, but he created a body with form. And then he breathed life into that body. And that whole you, body and soul, belong to Jesus under his cross. Grab your Bible and let's turn back to 1 Corinthians 6. I'm just going to read 15 through 20. 1 Corinthians 6, 15 through 20. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, as it is written in the beginning, the two will become one flesh. Paul is pointing back to design. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Verse 18, flee from sexual immorality, period. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Paul is trying to correct this Corinthian church. This newly formed church had individuals claiming Jesus, but going around suing and defrauding each other. He's trying to correct that. The next thing, people are, there's some that are sleeping with prostitutes. And what are they claiming? Their bodies are their own, but their spirit belongs to God. I can do with my body what I want, but my spirit is God's. And he is correcting that. He's coming in and correcting that. And, and one of the main things he says is verse 18. What does he say? Flee. Flee sexual immorality. This is really one of the only sins in the Bible where the, the, the recipe is just Run. A lot of sins, the Bible calls us to fight. Prepare my hands for war. Let me battle. Fight against. Engage. This is one that just says, just run. Just run. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, he says. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own 
body. That verse always kind of confused me a little bit growing up and, and hearing it. Um, but what he's saying is that God is the designer. That's what Paul is saying. God is the designer. He's giving us vision for our bodies. And he's saying that our bodies are not disconnected from who we are. When we use our bodies like this, it affects all of us. All of who we are. Emotionally, physically, psychologically, spiritually. Dallas Willard says this, and guys, this I think is really key if you want to know what are we going to do with our bodies. This is so fundamental. Dallas Willard says this, that the body is at the center of the spiritual life because it gives us the energy and means to live out Jesus' teachings. The body gives you energy and means to actually live out the things Jesus commanded, the things he taught us, the things we learn in Scripture. Romans 6.13 says, Present your bodily parts to God as instruments or weapons of righteousness. I love that. Weapons of righteousness. This is what our bodies are for. If you're wondering. This is what our bodies are for. To enjoy God. You have a body so that you're able to fully enjoy God. This side of heaven. You have a body so you're able to fully enjoy God. God's creation, right? You have eyes to read his word, ears to hear his word. You have a mouth to sing. You have arms and hands to make music. You have legs and feet to run and climb mountains. He gave you skin so that you can feel touch, so that you can feel the the warmth of the sun so that you can feel a morning breeze. He gave you a nose and a tongue to smell and taste an awesome home-cooked meal. Amen. (laughs) He calls us to use our bodies in service to others, to work, to hold, to hug, to give, to feed, to clothe, to heal, to protect. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. See what God will do. How he'll show you how to enjoy him, what's right and wrong, how to live holy, how to live well. He knows what's best, and he has a plan and vision for your body. So Paul here in 1 Corinthians um, 18 and 20 specifically is making a case that to separate the body from the soul is going directly against the creative purpose of your maker, of God, God's design. But interestingly enough, and I think this is significant, he doesn't ground his argument um, against sexual immorality in the places you would expect, right? He doesn't say, you know, prostitution is never truly consensual, therefore inherently violent and abusive. He doesn't say that it could possibly lead to illegitimate children, broken marriages, broken families. He doesn't even say it could spread diseases, which it inevitably would. He doesn't say it's impure, socially unacceptable, lacks integrity, shows lack of self-control. But as, as Alan Noble points out, he says he roots his argument in belonging. You belong to God. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. 
So by the cross, Christ purchased you. So in essence, he owns you. You know what used to own you? Sin. Shame. The perception that you owned yourself. That owns you. And you are a bad master. (laughs) But the good, gracious king of kings now does. And he's a way better master. He's a way better king. So we bring our whole life to him. We bring our whole body to him. We bring our nakedness to him. Come fig leaves and all. (laughs) Come to him. Let Christ cover you. Cover you with an everlasting garment. It's what God did in the garden, right? They had these fig leaves. But he took an animal's life. There had to be a sacrifice. And he clothed them in the garments of the skin of that animal. What was that pointing to? There's going to have to be another sacrifice. A way better one. A bigger one. And that's Jesus. In Ezekiel chapter 16, there's a really long passage that is basically just a prophecy to the people of God. And God is essentially saying, you've prostituted yourself as a people. There's word pictures and metaphors going on. Um, But he says this, after he's kind of pointed these things out, he says, when I pass by you again, this is God speaking, I saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you, and I covered your nakedness. And I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. When you're in that covenant, it's forever. God will keep you, protect you forever. If you're familiar, there's a kind of a famous document, prayer, called the Heidelberg Catechism. Um, And in the same way Paul was trying to correct this Corinthian church, reminding them of important church doctrines, so were the writers of this catechism in the 16th century. They were trying to protect the church from being dissuaded away from following Jesus and following their own way. Um, Keith, could you put up that? Or Denise, could you put up that, that question? Yeah. What is... This is the first question it asks. It's the first section of this prayer. What is your only comfort in life and death? What is our only comfort in life and death? And I think what that first question um, assumes is that there is great discomfort. Not only in death, but in life and in living. And we're going to be tempted in a lot of ways throughout our life to go our own way to protect ourselves, to follow in the footsteps of Cain and build our own city. But it doesn't work. It doesn't work out. And so we find great comfort in the Lord in this life. Because this life is hard. This life is tough. And there's sin in and throughout your life. There's sin all around you. There's brokenness. There's sexual brokenness. There's disordered views of bodies. And we live in that pretty much 24-7. I'm really thankful you're hearing this talk, but this is a blip on the map of your life. So how we ended last week, I want to end in the same way. We're going to read this together, and we're going to find great comfort in the fact that when you submit to Jesus, 
you're covered by him. You're covered by his blood and you belong in the family of God forever. So would you stand with me? So what's our only hope in life and death? Let's read this together. That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all these things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Father, that's our heart. That's what we're trying to figure out. We're trying to sort out how to live for you. How to live under the covering and the shadow of your wing. How to live out the reality of the gospel. That it's Jesus who is sacrificed for us. It's Jesus who covers us. It's Jesus who keeps us. It's Jesus who protects us. He's our advocate. Who's our hope. This world is speaking a lot, God. And we need to hear you. We need to see your vision for our life. And that includes our bodies. That very much includes our understanding of sexuality and how that should play out. What's best? What's, how have you designed us? So God, we pray that we would just continue to take steps by your Holy Spirit within us to submit our whole life to you. Not just the parts that we're comfortable with, not just the parts that are culturally acceptable, but our whole life. Our dreams, our future, our hopes, all of it, Lord. We live in the land of opportunity and and that seems like we can just seize all of it. But when we do, we go out on our own and we end up hurting ourselves and hurting others. So show us a better way, God. We love you. We actually are finding great joy in figuring out how to submit to you. Thank you for walking with us and never leaving us. Your promise to us is a forever promise. Your love is steadfast, everlasting, never stopping, never ceasing love. And so we just, we pray that you would show us how that plays out. (laughs) We love you, God. Thank you for you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.